Hello, and welcome to Dope Conversations Podcast. I am your host, Bikita Pegram, and I am going to give you something to think about. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. The week that I have been waiting for is here. We are finally going to get to talk about racial battle fatigue with the great Dr. William A. Smith. I'm so glad to have him on today. And we're going to talk about identifying racial battle fatigue and coping with the symptoms. Because some of us don't even know that we're exhibiting racial battle fatigue. And so we're going to help you figure out if that's you and then how to cope with it. So our guest, again, is William A. Smith. This is some research that he's been working on for over a decade, and he is a professor at Ohio, and excuse me, at Utah. I'm so sorry. I'm thinking about the game, uh, March Madness, and I was surprised that they lost. <laughs> so that was still on my mind. <laughs> but Dr. Smith, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to delve into your research and help our neighbors and our friends really understand what's going on and possibly be able to figure out what's going on with themselves. Because we both know that doing social justice is it's a laborious job. People think that it's an easy job and it's not. And we can look at leaders like Martin, Martin X, excuse me, Martin, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and see that it can cause trouble at home. It can cause trouble within your mind, physical being. And I just want to help people, especially our dope listeners, understand what it is and how to move from that. So to start out, can you please define racial battle fatigue? What exactly is racial battle fatigue? All right. Well, I'll give you a, a technical definition of it. Then I'll break it down just as a grassroots explanation. Okay. Okay. So racial battle fatigue is primarily a systemic race-related repetitive stress injury or syndrome. All right. So now what that really means is for, for the grassroots people, mm-hmm. you might've uh, remembered uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five when they said, I'm almost going over the edge. Yes. <laughs> Don't push me. <laughs> yes. I'm close to the edge. That's how black people and other racially minoritized people feel when they have to deal with racism on a daily basis that is pushing them over the edge. I just don't have much more to give you. I might just snap, you know, or uh, lose my mind up in here, here, right? (laughs) That's what racial battle fatigue is understood as at the grassroots level. That helps because I think a lot of people, you have emotions and you don't really know how to explain it. And that helps if you can identify the emotion, then you can deal with it. Right, right. See, some people um, commonly mistake it as a post-traumatic stress disorder. All right. There's nothing post about white supremacy and racism. Mm. So Barack Obama got elected. We did not enter into a post-racist society. What black people have been enduring from Basically, the cradle to the grave is a repetitive race-related stress injury. So we constantly have to deal with gendered racism, 
throughout our whole life. So there's no opportunity for us to be taken away from the traumatic experiences and put in Wakanda right. where everything's all right. 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 So there's nowhere we can run to where we don't have to deal with anti-blackness. And I read something that you wrote, well, actually you wrote a, a paper about Obama's presidency and how he as a president didn't get to run away from his blackness just because he was the president. Right, right. And, you know, with President Obama, um, even when he was campaigning for the office, he was the earliest person to get security details because of death threats than any other candidate. And then after that, you know, the disrespect of the office, when somebody can call you a lie, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nothing has ever happened to a president that probably is comparable to what has happened to uh, Barack Obama. Right. So we we can see that with um, this last president that just left. (laughs) Yeah, because he was able to do some things that no black man would be able to do and let alone a black president and Obama did face. And I do remember him having to have detail when he was running for office very early on. And he went through things that, and I want, you know what, not even just him, his family, his kids, his his wife went through things and still are going through things that most presidents never have to go through. Exactly. And it was he was consciously reminded that he was black. Even his preacher was attacked. You know, it it was. He was reminded and we were known that he's a black man and he really, to be honest, he didn't want him there under any circumstances. And they still mad he was there. Right. Right. And so that that shows you the life consequences of being black, uh, particularly in the U.S., but really all over the globe. So, uh, you know, a a person like Barack Obama or Jeremiah Wright, you cannot afford to even tell um, a piece of the story that's truthful. Right. Or you'll attack. Yeah. And saw that with Colin Kaepernick. Oh, yeah. Jeremiah Wright. We saw that with, um, you know, every other Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Fred Hampton. Marcus Garvey. Marcus. But... Most of the people, at least in the contemporary era, when you are a black man and you try to stand up and fight for your people, you get assassinated. Yeah. So if you don't get physically assassinated, which many of those people did, you get publicly assassinated like Colin Kaepernick did. Yeah. So what does that tell your people? Right. And that reminds me of I was reading something. You did a forward for a book about black faculty, racial battle fatigue and faculty. And one of the lines that you wrote in a fort, it was, you must have remarkable courage and deep commitment to social justice to risk your career while often fighting in a lone battle. Right. And that's what it feels like at the grassroots level. Cause sometimes some of the things that we get on our soapbox for, it doesn't seem like nobody else sees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that contributes to racial battle fatigue because you feel like you're alone and like, okay, nobody else sees this going on but me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, and the, the thing that's also um, less spoken about or less understood is this elevation of black women who are what I call uh, sojourners. 
Um, and I have a study coming out called Sojourner's Truth. Mm. And it's a national study on black women. And one of the things that um, I found in that study is that these black women, highly educated, are the lone person, the lone black person in their career location all across the country. And so they have to take on this burden of blackness mm. alone by themselves. And that is um, basically turned into major health problems. About one third, 25% to one third of those black women were talking about leaving the country, you know, wow. because of the anti-blackness, not just in their work, but in the larger society, because many of them had either black husbands or black sons. Right. So they had to think about that in addition to what they were experiencing at their job. Wow. And that's scary because not only are they battling with being a woman, but being a black woman, See, the, most, no right, the most disrespecting human on earth, <laughs> it's hard. Well, see, See, the thing is, what we have to start to do to understand um, black women, black gay women, black gay men, black men, is we have to see them as interlocking identities. Don't try to separate them. Yes. Right? The problem is, and people talk about intersectionality, but I don't use intersectionality, although interlocking is very similar. But when you have a lock on something, that means you can't take it apart. Mm, I like that. Yeah, people tend to use intersectionality at their convenience. So they'll be intersectional in their explanation and then turn right around and then talk about another group just as one dimensional. (laughs) So what we have to stop doing is flattening race, flattening gender, flattening sexuality, flattening ability. Right. Right. And then flattening class. We have to understand those interlocking identities. That doesn't mean that um, one is going to have much more stress than the other because they might have five identities. We only have a certain amount of stress that we can take. So let's at a hundred percent level, just because you might be a straight black woman doesn't mean that a gay black woman with a disability is going to have more stress than you. She's going to have different stress and some similar stress. But she could be overstressed to the same amount of pressure that you're overstressed on. Yeah. So it's it's not, you don't, people like to get into this oppression sweepstakes Hmm. and say, I do that. I go with the data. And what the data tells us is that there is a stress overload that people, based upon their interlocking identities, have to deal with. And so that's the reason why we have understudied and underdiagnosed black men, because Mm -hmm. they'll say, well, they're they're men, so they have a privilege, but they're black men. And we just talked about all these black men who got assassinated. Right. Right. And and we know if you look at all of the um, data, they're at the very bottom, educationally, um, underemployment, unemployment, um, special ed, Deaf, yeah, right. So how can you in, how can you unlock it and say okay, well they're men, but they don't gain any benefit when they're killed more than any other group, right? Because their blackness blocks out our 
scratches out the privilege of being a man. Right. And see what we what we do is we 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 come up with theories that are weak and the theories don't explain the data that is right in front of our eyes. Matter of fact, it makes us blind. Mm. So when we just look at the data without prejudice, then we can make better conclusions and then we can have better um, ways of addressing oppression rather than to go in there with our biases. Right. Right. And then we become just as problematic as the oppressor. And that's the same thing that Carter G. Woodson said. That's the same thing that W.E.B. Du Bois said when um, the separate the um, separation of uh, Negroes in schools. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, that's the same thing that Frederick Douglass said. Right. So we have to be better than our oppressors. Mm. So since you say you look at the data, what influenced you to even start looking at this research, showed interest in this research? What made you say, okay, I need to look at what's impacting black men, what's impact, impacting the black community? Well, it, it started off probably um, with my dissertation. So that's, you know, 30 some years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And I was looking at um, identity and and people's beliefs on uh, equality, inequality, and racism. And I looked at blacks, whites, Asians, and Latinas, Latinos. And I found um, some crazy results that we, you know, it's pretty much um, um, the same stuff that we know, but it predicted the affirmative action backlash. Mm-hmm. So this is really got into the affirmative action backlash and higher education, but it predicted that. And so what we saw was that black people, black women and black men, are the most progressive than any other group, even when it doesn't benefit them directly. Then it's um, Latinas, Latinos, um, and Asians, and whites were roughly the same. And from that, I started exploring um, later um, what black faculty were doing. Some people look at Wikipedia and um, that Wikipedia page on racial battle fatigue and they got it all wrong. And then there was an article that said I started off with racial battle fatigue on black men. I didn't do that. Okay. I started racial battle fatigue on black faculty, both black men and black women. Mm. Right? And then later I did black men because people in higher ed were, um, even black people, were really given um, false information about black men and their issues. Mm. Now, so, I, so I said, I need to do something about this. And that's when I started um, for a few years focusing on black men. And then I went back um, to black people, um, black women, um, Latinos and Latinas. Um, and now I'm looking at other groups. But it was really because of um, Hyriot and like, for instance, people studying black men or saying something about black men, writing something about black men and have never read a book, an article, or had a class on black men. Right. You know, I'm like, okay, I know how it. I've been around here for 30 years. Uh-huh. So you show me the class that you had that you, gives you the authority right. to say what you said. And then it's not in your data. Right. right. So that's why I did it. And then once I felt I, and I got attacked for that early on, 
But once um, I did that, then I said, okay, let me start going back to um, black people in general. Mm-hmm. That's good. I, it, I hear you saying that there were people writing about the black male experience that weren't black male and really didn't really sit down to understand the plight right. of the black male. So you or wanted, ask, yeah, or ask the appropriate questions. Right. I can't sit down and interview you if you are a cisgender black woman, um, straight black woman. Mm-hmm. There's a certain types of questions I would ask you. If mm-hmm. I use the same questions to turn around to ask black men that's been tailored to black women, then I'm not going to get all of the information from the black men. Right. Right? Um, I have to script those questions in a way that brings out information on them. And that's the same thing if it was dealing with a gay uh, black man or a lesbian black woman. There's certain types of questions we must ask to get the best information from them so we can deal with the problems. We don't use straight uh, um, frameworks to deal with queer relationships. Right. That makes total sense. And and I think that was important to be defined because it is different. And you're going to have to talk to people differently to really get their experience from them. Because they're only going to be able to give you what you ask. So if you ask me straight questions and I don't have any experience in being straight, I'm not going to be able to give you what you need. Exactly. Exactly. And and people act like they don't understand that. But they know what they're doing. It's just like. They, they try to pit us, uh, uh, black men and black women, against each other. Like, yeah. like even with this last election, black women uh, saved the Democratic Party. And you're a scholar, and you know if you did a survey and you got 86% uh, return, mm-hmm. you'd be jumping in the air like, man, nobody gets this. <laughs> right? men, look, black men responded in 86% to the Democrats. Black women, 93%. In my book, it seems like black people save right. the Democratic Party. Exactly. Now, what we have to do is get out of that kind of oppression sweet states or trying to up one another and ask ourselves, why did we allow ourselves to get pipped by the Democratic Party? Because we didn't ask we didn't ask for anything in return. We just gave them our vote. Right. And now we're sitting here. Looking, yeah. Like, okay, well, we got them in office, so now what? Exactly. And that's what we tend to do. And so nobody said anything. They blame the black men for not voting 100 percent. Nobody said anything about the other groups who voted far less for the Democratic Party than us. But for some reason, people felt like they needed to attack black men. And so part of this anti-black misandry is what I talk about to talk about those people who do those type of things. And if they addressing black women in an unfair and oppressive way, I talk about anti-black misogyny. Right. That's good. So if we have moms, dads, teachers out there trying to be change agents and doing what they can in their community and fighting the battles at their local school district, at the polls, doing all that they can, how can they identify if they're displaying racial battle fatigue? How can they identify those things in them that are starting to wear them down that might stop them from continuing the fight? Well, you know, I think most black folks understand and know. They just didn't have the terminology. Mm -hmm. 
And like, for instance, when I first started this and I went home to Chicago, uh, I was at a, dr um, a car wash. And you know how, you know, black folks in your community are all proud of you when you go off to college and yeah. you're doing all things. Like, oh, here you are, one of the more big time professors. What you studying up there in the big university? And I said, well, you know, I usually don't say racial battle fatigue. I'll say race-related stress or something. Mm -hmm. But this time I said, well, I'm, I'm doing racial battle fatigue. And I said, oh, I got that. <laughs> and, and then they, 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 they identified it and defined it exactly like I would articulate it, just, you know, the regular folks, right? Right. Physiological strain. It's a psychological strain. It's an emotional and behavioral strain. Right. So when you start going into an environment that is hostile to you and all of a sudden your stomach hurts, your head hurt, mm -hmm. um, you start getting pains and old injuries and you, you feel uncomfortable, that's a physiological response. Um, psychologically, you might withdraw and tire these folks, yeah. you know. Somebody talked to me today, I'm a bust a cap to me. <laughs> you, know, right. you feel that way. That's that's a psychological, right? And so you have these psychological, emotional, and behavioral response. Behavioral, you might withdraw mm -hmm. or have stereotype threat or any of those type of things. But it's a compromise to your biopsychosocial system that then puts you at increased rate for morbidity and mortality statistics. Yes. And see, I like the fact, one, you said a couple of things that I like. One, a lot of times as scholars, we use the the research technolo um, technical words. But on the local level, they knew exactly what you were talking about when you right. said it a different way. And right. and that's all this whole podcast is about, is bringing that research to light, but making it available to the neighborhood. Right. And right. when you said that about, you know, you start getting that stomach ache, you get headaches, you start withdrawing. We knowing that we tired of the battle, but right. we didn't realize that, hey, there's actually, this is a thing. I'm not the right. only one feeling this. Right. It, it, you know, you can get tired. You, right. You, you right. get tired of fighting every day when you go to work, when mm -hmm. you go to the PTA meeting, when right. you at the grocery store. And so I think as much as we may have known that we were going through this to be able to identify it and call it out it helps right right and you know and you know we find that black women in particular that they tend to go to church more big mama pray more she go in the closet close the door leave me alone i gotta be in here for five minutes right <laughs> so she's in there praying for us to get over those racialized barriers right you know so that we won't be attacked so there's different um adaptive coping strategies that we use to mitigate it, but it can't eliminate it because we can't eliminate right now white supremacy. Right. Because I was looking at the behavioral stress responses, the examples you gave, um, mm -hmm. like you just said, increased commitment to spirituality, overeating or loss of appetite, impatience, quick to argue, procrastination, increase in alcohol or drugs, increased smoking, withdrawal or isolation from others, neglect of responsibility, poor school or job performance. I can honestly say that I've experienced some of this. <laughs> yeah. But you, you know, the thing is with racial battle fatigue, it could be one or multiple of those indicators, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to understand that this, that racism is a violent act. Our body codes racism as violence. And so you have a physiological response to everything that you uh, experience, 
or think about. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, a sister can go to work and she's dealing with all this racism, this gendered racism at work. Then she comes home. She goes to bed and she dreams about that. Her body does not get an opportunity to recover, to rejuvenate, so she can go back and fight for another day. Yeah. So the same fight that she uh, dealt with in her waking moment is what she's dealing with physiologically when she's asleep. Mm-hmm. So that's why the, the the poor health in black women are at a, it's higher than every other group. Yeah. And so one of the things that black women get is a cortisol increase, right? Mm-hmm. They have hyperarousal. So, so when you look at black women compared to all other groups, they also show it in their, um, their additional weight that they carry. And I'm not talking about psychological. I'm talking yeah. about, you know, the pounds, right. right? And so what happens is you tend to gain weight because of stress. Now, the extra pounds um, isn't all explained by. Yeah. The- <laughs> well, I'm blaming all of mine on racial battle fatigue. <laughs> I've been out here fighting for y'all. And that's why I gained this weight. <laughs> but a good amount of that can be explained by the, the racism that they experience. So that, what does that mean? That means that for us as a people, we have to do extra in order to offset that. So we have to watch what we eat. We have to meditate. We have to do um, adaptive coping as opposed to maladaptive coping. We need to really work out because when you go out there and dealing with white supremacy, it's like you dealing with uh, a heavyweight boxing match. Right. Yeah. And you wouldn't go out there eating cookies and ice cream right before you fight Mike Tyson. Right. <laughs> no, like for real. Man, that is so true. It's, it's like, and that's why, like the next question for you is ways to reduce the impact. And I like what you said about meditating. That was one of my tips. And we'll talk about on, on the block and that simple 15 minutes of just closing your eyes sometimes will help. And I think, you know, you're talking about dealing with psychological issues in a physical way. You're going to have to fight it in a physical way. Right. And I think a lot of people don't realize the mental stress can exhibit in physical ways, the weight, um, back pain, the physical pain that you feel may be attached to the psychological dealings of race. Yes. I mean, it can show up in ways like just a rash. Yeah. Like, well, where is this rash from? It's because of the stress that you're dealing with because of racism. Right. And I noticed um, one of the physiological stresses you talked about were grinding your teeth, clenched jaws, chest pain, shortness of breath, pounding heart, heart, high blood pressure. And, you know, that's a high culprit in our community. Black women heart attacks are secret heart attacks is what they were calling them at one time. As far as you think she's fine and you never know. And then she has a heart attack because she's stressed. Exactly. Muscle aches, indigestion, all those, you know, people popping tums because acid (laughs) reflux, all of that is real. Exactly. And so when you start to understand that there's a name for your pain, then you can develop, um, concrete solutions to try to 
either mitigated or eliminated. Right. And so that's what black folks uh, have to understand that, uh, and that's why when you deal with white supremacy, one of the things that COVID um, has shown us that who was dying the most hmm. from COVID-19? That's... Black people have pre-existing conditions, but those pre-existing conditions were primarily related to racial battle fatigue yeah. from the white supremacy and racism that we deal with every day. And Dr. Smith, we couldn't even escape it during COVID. George no. Floyd, we haven't marched to prove that we're human and treat us like human during COVID. I couldn't even wake up one day and just be Bikita. I'm always going to be a black woman in America. And I couldn't even just concentrate on the pandemic. I had to focus on dang, telling my son, Hey, be careful in them streets. You know, watch yourself. I can't say focus on your mask. (laughs) You know, the things that some cultures have that ability to just say, Hey, make sure you wear your mask. No, wear your mask. Make sure you be careful because now you're a black man with a mask in an area that they don't want you in. Right, right. So that's that's the weight of being black that we have to deal with. And you have to, we have to understand it as um, anti blackness is a global stereotype, it's a global behavior mm-hmm. no other group uh, has a, a anti-stereotype like black people because we being the mothers and fathers of civilization obviously are in every corner of this world and so every place has an oppressive system against black people Mexico yeah. we were enslaved there Spain London. I mean, wherever you go, China. I was just about to say that because we saw that in the pandemic. Here you are. You got Nigerians and Africans being beaten and kicked out of their homes in China because they were reflective of what they were getting as far as hate. So now they're putting it on Africans. And they've done that over the centuries, though. Yeah. So so the thing is, how, what group of people have to deal with a pandemic of racism, of anti-blackness from centuries ago? Yeah. If yes. you don't have that experience and you don't recognize that and that's not part of your data, then there's a problem. So if you try to analyze a group of people and you do not have the oppressor or the oppressive system as part of your explanation then you'll come up to a wrong conclusion and make the black person the problem. Yeah. And And so that's what I saw with um, trying to introduce racial battle fatigue Mm -hmm. is we'll say, well, black women don't do this. They doing this wrong, blah, blah, blah. Black men is this. And they doing this wrong. They hyper masking. Wait a minute. First of all, hyper, what is it? Whatever that thing, hyper toxic, (laughs) something, you know, and again, they're blaming the victim. And so much so that all black women are angry. All black men, like you said, super aggressive. And so when you see a black person that is frustrated, defensive, (laughs) irritable, sudden mood changes, shocked, anger, disappointment, all that's going to come out. And so do you do get violent protests? You do. So when the protests happen, I was not surprised and I was not disappointed in my people because they tired. And these right. young people, they're not putting up with some of the stuff that we did. 
Mm-hmm. These young people tired. Right. And so they're, they're acting out and, and they're showing physically I'm tired. I'm tired mm-hmm. of you pushing me. I'm tired of you stopping me for no reason. I'm tired of the, the words that's being said to me. I'm tired of y'all telling me to get over it. Right. So it's being displayed. Right. Right. Exactly. You see, that's a misunderstanding and not taking into full consideration the black experience. Right. And that's, again, why it's not post-traumatic. It's a repetitive stress injury. A rate of systemic race-related repetitive stress injury. From the, and, and if we take in epigenetics into it, which means that coded within the DNA cellular structure, mm-hmm. your grandmother or your grandfather was stressed due to racism, that that can pa- be passed down across generations. And we know that. We've, we've had studies on that. The, uh, 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 what was it, the Soviet, uh, under Stalin, when they were starved to death from 1932 to 1933, we saw that the grandchildren of those people were having some of the same traumatic feelings as the as their grandparents. And we saw that with the, 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 the Jews, right? Yeah. Now, those periods were much shorter than African enslavement. Right. Right? Or right. European enslavement of Africans. And so, but nobody wants to give us uh, you know, understanding that if you go through a system of 400, 500 years of, of enslavement and then into um, the Black Codes and Jim Crow and then Jane Crow, we're not supposed to feel a certain way. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's I keep saying, and I'm going to say it forever, you can't get over something that is still occurring. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me to get over what has happened in the past when it's just be reinvented for the present. Mm -hmm. So no, this is present. And like you said, it's not going to clear up overnight, but I at least want to be able to help our people understand what is going on with inside of them so they can deal with it. So we can continue to fight. Right. Right. Well, you know, one of the ways that we can mitigate racial battle fatigue, one of the most successful things is to have a healthy racial identity. Mm. That's the thing that seems to be one of the most protective factors for black people. That prayer, uh, meditation, but a healthy racial identity. So when the oppressor system or an oppressor attacks you, your identity is unquestionable. But those people who are dealing with identity exploration or I'm human, my mama told me I was human, you the same as everybody else, mm-hmm. and you just go out there like that, mm-hmm. then you're vulnerable. Yeah. When tells me what the voice told me, that I'm black and be secure in my identity, but you also have to realize that you're part of this American system right. and know what this, this system is like. Now they are equipped with yep. understanding that I won't be caught off guard. And the black people who suffer the most are the ones that tend to be caught off guard. Yep. And I think that even starts as parents. We have a responsibility to our children to let them know that you are black in America. My kids, Mm -hmm. when they were young, we watched 2020 specials about 
white parents raising their kids to hate black people just because. And I made them watch it. I said, because you need to know what you're going to be faced with in America. I love you and I want you to have friends of all colors. However, Mm -hmm. this is you and this is America. Right. And, you know, one of the things we got to realize for those black folks is we don't need to have that old racial identity stuff. We just need to live and work and and fight whatever comes our way. Well, you know, the racial identity um, theories got developed by Jews for Jews. Right. After coming out of the Holocaust, they saw many of the same symptoms that, you know, black people are experiencing. Um, self-hatred, um, um, being too uh, um, uh, dependent on mama. Right. Uh, I mean, all these different things. And they understood that if you're to have a healthy self-concept, a healthy self-concept equal, well, let me put change the formula around your personal identity plus your group identity if those two things are positive then it will have a healthy self-concept for the individual if you have a low group identity and a positive uh, personal identity your self-concept will still be at risk Mm. you have to have a healthy and positive personal and group identity right so what if you look at everything we watch that has black people in it, um, all the things that you see in the movies, TV, newspaper, what they're doing is attacking the group identity. So if I attack the group identity, if I attack uh, if I, or I put out information that have black women and black men fighting each other, the group identity is weakened. Yeah. And so you might have a great personal identity, but your self-concept is threatened. You know... So- I'm sorry. When you were talking, that made me think that is why HBCUs and the Divine Nine are so successful. Mm -hmm. They help create that positive identity in self, but also you have that group positive identity. And as you were talking, I think that's why HBCUs are still needed today. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, think about, and I know these two are, the most often used examples, but Spellman and Morehouse, mm-hmm. right? Those women and those men who go to those schools are told that you are a Spellman woman, that you are a Morehouse man, and there's something that comes with that. And and you are supposed to um, try to work towards excellence. Yeah. So now they're shaping your personal identity with your group mm-hmm. identity that raises your self-concept and your commitment to the group, yeah. right? So, so those things are are protected while you're at Morehouse and Spelman. Mm-hmm. You had a, a historically white um, school, college, and university. Your personal identity is attacked, and your group identity is attacked. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why. I know a lot of people ask, well, why do we still need HBCUs? You still need them because you can even tell from the people that haven't officially graduated. You went to an HBCU for a semester. They love that school today, tomorrow, and forevermore because of what they learned about themselves at an HBCU. Wow. It's it's no no, um, surprise that I think still 75 to 80% of black people in graduate school did an undergraduate degree at an HBCU. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So how is it that now we got so many black people at historically white colleges and universities and fewer of them going on to graduate school than the ones that come out of just a handful of HBCUs? Right. Yeah. Wow. Dr. Smith, this has been amazing. I have loved every second of it. I could talk to you forever about this, but it's time for On My Block and on my block, we like I said, we're just going to give out some tips that they can do in their neighborhood and so they can keep going, keep fighting the fight because the fight's not going to end itself. So one thing that I had written down, and it's funny, you confirmed a lot of the things that I wrote down for this part. So the first thing is meditate. You got to clear your mind. You got to give yourself a way to rejuvenate and Get some of the noise out. A clear mind can think of positive things and new things to do. And you got to have some me time. Step away from the fight for a minute. Whether it be watch your favorite goofy movie on TV or um, your favorite documentary. Something that just kind of you love to do. Like after this, I'm going to get my nails and feet done. (laughs) That's what I like to do. You got to find that thing. And it's okay. It's okay to step away from the fight for just a moment to take care of yourself. It's just like on the airplane. You can't save yourself. If you you can't save someone else, if you haven't saved yourself, you got to save yourself first. Naps. Yes. Nap time is a real thing. You need to get some sleep. You can't grind all day and grind all night. You got to get a nap in there. If you know you didn't get the proper eight hours of sleep last night, take you a 15, 20, 30 minute nap. Rejuvenate. We need sleep. And lastly, create partnerships. And you're creating positive partnerships with people that can help you because we want to change that lone battle. You don't, you shouldn't fight these battles by yourself. So find that girlfriend that like to, listen to you help bring her in on it that that homie that y'all go and go to the bar and have a drink take a time and discuss some ways that y'all can partner up and help with voter rights there's ways to do this that you don't have to do this on your own but i want to make sure that you can rejuvenate yourself so that you can keep going because the battle is not over and like nipsey said it's a marathon it's not going to end in this decade we got to do the work and we got to be strong enough to do it so we got to take care of ourselves so i want to thank you again dr smith for coming is there anything that you are working on or about to produce and you want to let everybody know what you're doing well i'm i'm still i was uh finished pretty much with that national study on black women it's a qualitative um study uh, one-on-one interviews but i've been getting so many more requests from sisters that they want to participate so they can email me at uh, william w-i-l-l-i-a-m dot smith s-m-i-t-h at utah u-t-a-h dot edu william dot smith at utah dot edu if they're interested in participating um, in this national study of black women. Um, cause what we're going to try to do is work on strategies for the sisters based on this data, but also given their real experiences with dealing with gendered microaggressions and racial battle fatigue. 
Awesome. That's amazing. And audience, I'll put that in the description of the podcast. And whenever I post it on social media, I'll also put his email there because that's important work. And ladies, if we want our story to be told correctly, this is how we get our story told correctly and by us. So I'll put his email in the description and in the comments of the post. Again, thank you. If y'all have a moment, follow him on um, Twitter, but also look up some of his work. The work is interesting, and it's about us. Nothing like for us, by us. (laughs) So thank you so much again. We want to say thank you for listening to us today. Please like, follow, subscribe, leave a review. Let us know how you like the show. If you have any suggestions of topics that we can do in the future, let us know. We would love to hear those suggestions. You can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Bikita Pegram and also my website, BikitaPegram.com. So until next time, go forth and be great. Bikita out.